Good morning, church. Um, Today we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8, and we'll be reading through to chapter 6, verse 12. Um, It's 555 in the Bibles around the room. I'm going to read the scripture, and then when I'm done, I will say this is the reading of God's word, and you will respond by saying, thanks be to God. And we respond that way because we're thankful that God has provided his word for us. Ecclesiastes 5, 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with, with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to him to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the same one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity." and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? 
For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This is a reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us meaning to our otherwise meaningless life. Everything God apart from you is vanity. And we are so thankful that you are merciful and loving and provided your son Jesus to live and die for us so that we may be with you in your heavenly kingdom. Help us not to be focused on things of this world, not wealth or possession, but instead help us to rest in your grace, knowing that all will be satisfied in you. God, be with us today, glorified your word. Let us receive your message with open hands. Bless Pastor Kyle as he moves through your scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you, Casey. Good morning, church. You guys awake yet? You awake? Spring forward? Lose an hour of sleep? I'm pretty sure that Satan invented that. He's like, how can I make people grumpy and irritable and hate each other? Let's take away an hour of sleep. Uh, If you're new to the church, welcome. My name is Kyle. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. And what we like to do at this church is we like to go through the Bible. And I know that you might be here with a lot of questions. You might be here kind of um, seeking what uh, Christianity has to offer. You might uh, be, uh, have even a lot of skepticisms in your heart. And this is a safe place for you. This is a place where you can come and you can ask questions and you can seek what the Bible says. And it's actually good because we like to go through books of the Bible just chunks at a time. And you can really get into what they say. And we're right now in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is pretty close to the middle of your Bible on page 555 on the Bibles we set out on the room. And um, if you're new to the Bible, the large numbers of the chapters and the little numbers are the verses, and we're going to be starting in chapter 5, verse 8. So today we're talking about money. Now, if you're a guest to church, you're like, I knew it. That's all churches ever talk about is money and how they want to take our money. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about our heart's approach to money. In 1996, there was a wonderful movie called Jerry Maguire. Did you see this movie? Tom Cruise, Cuba Gooding Jr. Cuba Gooding Jr. was a football player in the NFL. Tom Cruise was his agent. And uh, there's this scene where uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. is standing in his kitchen with his shirt off and talking to Tom Cruise on the phone. And he's saying, show me the money, Jerry. Show me the money. Show me the money. And it's because he believed that if he had more money, that's would make him happy. And I think this really well captures a lot of our athletes, our professional athletes, you know, in um, sports. But I think it's a profound statement because I think what they did is they captured the heart of America in that statement. Show me the money. I mean, it's written, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But we, we see that as the pursuit of money. Show me the money. Well, the speaker in today's passage, who's known in the book of Ecclesiastes as the preacher, or in Hebrew, Koheleth, Koheleth has something to say to us about that. He says this, empty is the heart that clings to money. And that's the big idea for today. Empty is the heart that clings to money. And so normally in my sermons, I have like three points, but today we have six So get comfortable, all right? 
they'll go pretty quickly. They're going to be on the screen so that you can remember them, all right? So the first point that he makes in this passage is when in regards to money is do not be surprised by economic injustice. The nature of man's heart in this fallen world is that all over the world, all over the globe, throughout all of history, our fallen world has been hungry for money, thinking that money will solve problems. But it actually just creates more problems. A hunger for money just creates more problems. And because of that, what we have in many countries all over the world is economic injustice. And he says to us in verse 8, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, or do not marvel at the matter. Do not be baffled at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So when you see economic injustice, don't be surprised. It's part of living in a fallen world. In a broken place. The readers of this who lived in an agrarian society might have imagined a young couple who, has, who have kids. Um, who just saved up enough money to buy a little plot of land. And they can um, reap harvest from their land. And they, can, they have just enough for them to live off of that land. But they're proud because they saved money and it's their land. But the king who's over them started to impose a tax. And the tax collectors came and they started to not just charge what the tax for the king was, but to charge double so they could keep the other portion for themselves. And this young couple didn't have enough money to pay. And so they were threatened with death or slavery. And so they had to sell their everything and, and become slaves of the king just to be able to survive. This was a common thing that would have happened in the day and age of Ecclesiastes. And, the, and Koheleth, the preacher says, don't be surprised at that. He, on one hand, he calls it injustice. He calls it a violation of righteousness. But he says that we ought not to be surprised because our world is hungry for money. And this is what happens in a world that's hungry for money. See, at the end of the day, though, he says that it's better to have this kind of tyranny than it would to have anarchy. That's what it means in verse 9. But this is gain for the land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Now, um, to be sure, this verse, verse 9, is debated by many different scholars on what it actually means in the original text. Um, but I think that Derek Kidner, the commentator, has it right when he's basically saying this. There is injustice in the land, and that's not okay. But at the end of the day, tyranny is better than anarchy. It's better to be in a government that has some corruption than it is to have no government at all. And so in Romans chapter 13, the apostle Paul in the New Testament even picks up on that. And he calls the Roman officials God's ministers, even though they were killing Christians. Um, he says these are people that we need to obey because a little bit of tyranny is still better than anarchy. And so what it goes to show us is this. There's two application points for this first point. Number one is we need to remember that economic injustice is called a violation of righteousness in this passage. And though it is the heart of man, it is not the heart of God. Amen, church? And so as Christians, we ought not to partake in economic injustice just because it's the way it is. 
We ought to do everything we can to stand up for the poor and for those who are facing unjust situations. That is our duty as Christians. And this has always been the case. Even in the Old Testament, if you were rich and you owned a big field, were you allowed to reap all the field? No, you had to leave the edges for the poor, the fatherless, the widowed, and the sojourner. It was commanded that if you were rich, not all of your money was yours. Not only did a portion of your money belong to God, but a portion of the money belonged to the poor around you. So this doesn't, nece- this doesn't necessarily mean that you just have to go out there and start giving free handouts, but it does mean you need to care for the poor. And that does mean that if you make enough money to have more than what you need, you have an obligation by God to care for the poor. And there's lots of different ways you can do that. You can give to a great nonprofit organization. You can grab one of the envelopes in front of you and click benevolence because there's lots of ways where we have poor people coming in and needing cash to be able to make it. This is the duty of those who are burdened um, with wealth. Now you might be like, well, that's not me. We're barely making ends meet. But on global standards, if you live off of more than $2 a day, if you eat more than two meals a day, if you have more than two changes of clothes a day, and if you have a safe place to sleep at night, you are rich. So most of us in this room are rich. And so the first application point is this. Though this is the heart of man, it's not the heart of God. And as a church, we need to be a church that is contributing to the poor. In the New Testament, um, those who had money and possessions, they were doing crazy things like selling their properties and selling their vehicles. Well, they didn't have vehicles, selling their donkeys. And then they were coming and taking the proceeds and laying them at the feet of the church. And it says, so that everything they had was all in common. So what that would look like in our day and age is if some person in our church is in a really big bind and they can't pay their rent, you selling something to be able to pay their rent within the church so that they can still live in their home. Or somebody needing food, you selling something to buy them food so that everybody in the church was taken care of and then they were even even able to extend this beyond the church so that those who weren't Christians got to experience the tangible love of Christ through gracious provision. This is the call of us. And so what it means is when you get that extra paycheck, when you make a little bit more money, when you get a raise, the first question you shouldn't ask is, what can I do with this money to bless myself? The first question you should ask is, what can I do to bless God and those who are in need? Not what vacation can I go on? Not what new toy can I buy? Not what bigger house can I get? But how can I care for the poor? That's the first application. The second application point is this. Just simply, don't be surprised by economic injustice, church. Don't be aghast at it. Don't marvel at it. Um, Don't get your hopes up thinking that the next politician or president is going to change things. Because they're not. Doesn't matter who is majority in Congress. Doesn't matter what your political bent is. There will always be corruption and injustice. It's a matter of fact. So it's good in our country to be politically involved. And those of you who are passionate about politics, it's great. We live in a democratic republic, and your votes actually matter. We can put people in office who can make wise decisions. It matters that we're passionate about politics, but let's not get our hopes up in politics. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who reigns. And the good news of the gospel is that one day he will come back and get rid of all injustice. Let's set our mind and hope to that day. In the meantime, we'll do the best we can with the tools we have, all right? But let's not get our hopes up. So that's the first point he makes. The second point he makes, it's going to be on the screen, 
is loving money makes you empty, not happy. Loving money makes you empty, not happy. This is found in verses 10 through 12. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So he says here, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. And he gives three reasons why. Number one, he says, because it's vanity to love money. Now that word vanity, you guys know if you've been coming for a while, is the Hebrew word havel. It's used uh, 38 times in this book. Everybody say havel. It means um, smoke or vapor. And if you were to think, if I were to blow out one of these candles, the smoke were to rise. If I were to reach for the smoke and try to grab the smoke, would I come up with smoke in my hand? No. Because the more intensity that you reach for, for smoke, the quicker it flees from your hands and you come up empty-handed. And so it's hevel to, pers- to, to love money. Um, uh, the commentator Derek Kidner says it like this, that the desires of your heart grow on what they feed on. So if your heart gets used to growing on feeding on money, guess what you're going to want next paycheck? More money, more money, more money. That's juxtaposed to if your heart grows and feeds on God. The desires of your heart will be satisfied because he's always offering himself to you. So it's smoke. The second reason why he says um, that it leaves you empty is because money attracts leeches, barnacles, moochers. Money will give you friends that really aren't your friends. One quote says it like this, some people will only love you as much as they can use you. Their loyalties end when the benefits stop. Imagine a young musician um, who lives in a one-bedroom studio, just slugging away, starving artists. They're playing at coffee shops and bars, and then a, a record producer hears them sing, and they're like, you got it. And then they give them a record deal, they go big, and all of a sudden, that lonely musician has an entourage going from city to city. All these friends, but they're not really friends, they just like the benefits of knowing a famous person and what that famous person can bring them. And that will leave you empty. And so Koheleth says that, yeah, you might look at yourself and be like, man, look at all these great people we have. But at the end of the day, they might just want you for what you can give them. And it's not real friendship. Um, The third reason why he says that loving money makes you empty is because um, money comes with two things. The more money you have, the more leisure time you get, and the more stress you get. And those two things together often cause many sleepless nights. And he says this is different than the day laborer. In the time of Ecclesiastes, the day laborer would eat before sunrise would work all day long and wouldn't get a meal until after the sun went down. That's a long day. But he says at least the day laborer gets a full night of sleep. So think about it, leisure time. The more money you make, um, you know, you have some leisure time. Even your job is sitting down. And your bodies are created to move and to exercise and to do stuff. And so if you're just sitting down all the time and, and that's what you're doing in your free time, a lot of people can't sleep. Because your body is not tired. Your mind might be, but your body's not. And so we even have to have gyms 
to go and make ourselves tired so we can sleep at night. This is a first world problem, people. We have gyms. We have, like, I got to go make myself tired. Okay, the day laborer laughs at us. Um, and then on top of that, you think about with more money often comes more stress because you'll have all these different responsibilities and you're running this business or doing that or whatever and your mind can't shut down. But the day laborer, it's just when they're done, they're done. The work's going to be there tomorrow. It's kind of nice. It's kind of simple. And so don't think that money is going to make you happy. You might be more happy if you quit your high-paying job and took a laborer's job. Because, you know what? Sometimes the simplicity is worth it. Sometimes the simplicity is worth it. And I was listening to a sermon on this by Brian Boardman, and he's, he's a preacher down in Gardnerville, and he said, I know a lot of people who make a million dollars a year, and they would pay a fat paycheck just to get a full night of sleep. So loving money doesn't make you happy. It often leaves you empty. Um, now we have to guard our hearts about this. We have to guard our hearts. Because from a young age, we're trained to think that if we have more money, we'll be more happy. We had a bunch of kids over at our house on Friday night, and it was great. We did a little game night. It was chaos. It was awesome. We had all the neighborhood kids. There was like 10 kids, and we were eating pizza, and I was sitting down there at the table eating pizza with them, and they're all telling me how they want to be rich when they grow up. And um, I was just thinking about that in light of this passage, and I was like, you guys, being rich won't make you happy. So if you're a kid in here, I want you to hear that. Being rich is not going to make you happy. Having a lot of stuff when you grow up isn't going to make it. It doesn't make you happy now. You have more toys than we had when we were growing up. You have more toys than lots of people all over the world. And it doesn't make you happy now. It's not going to make you happy then. But we have to guard our hearts. Because everywhere around us is telling us this false message. More money equals more happy. And it's not true. The third point that Kohelith makes in here is this. Seeking ultimate security in wealth is a bad investment. Seeking ultimate security in wealth is a bad investment. We find this in verses 13 through 17. It says this. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. So here, the Koheleth, the preacher, describes a guy who has a lot of money. He seems like he's pretty wise with his finances. He's saving for his 401k. He's saving for retirement. He uh, seems to be like a good businessman. He has a few things in the mix. He's doing some stuff on the stock market. He's got these new business ventures. And it says that he's gaining riches, but it's to his hurt. Because all of a sudden, it says in verse 14, when a bad venture comes along, he loses it all. Now, that word bad venture can mean either a bad investment or bad luck. And sometimes that's the way it works. You might be putting money into your retirement. 
You might be uh, being, you have this thing cooking where this new investment, this new business is going to make you a lot of money and then it goes bad and you lose it all. And, and sometimes we, we forget history. This has happened several times in our short American history. This has happened where, um, you know, the stock market crashes and everything falls apart and it could happen again, people. It wasn't that long ago when 2008, when CEOs were jumping out of buildings because they lost everything. This could still happen, and it probably will happen again. And sometimes uh, we lose everything because wars happen. Sometimes we lose everything because a famine strikes or some natural disaster. Sometimes we lose it because of our own stupidity. But the fact is that if you put your ultimate security in your riches, in your wealth, in your retirement, it is shifting sand. And it may be taken from you like this. And you're going to be really disappointed. And it says at the end of this guy, he says, what does he have to gain? Nothing. Came into this world naked. He's leaving naked too. And you guys have heard the old um, saying, you never seen a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. Because you ain't taking with nothing. You ain't taking nothing with you into the next life. And it says, what does he have to gain? It says all that he has is that he eats in darkness and his, lives are filled with, his life is filled with vexation, sickness, and anger. How many wealthy people do you know that that would be their description? Maybe this is you. Your life is filled with vexation, sickness, and anger because your hope is in the wrong place. Your, your ultimate security is in money. It's just money. Listen to what Jesus says on it in Luke chapter 12. I love sassy Jesus. We're going to encounter sassy Jesus here. It says this, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Do you believe that? Really? And he told them a parable saying, the land of the rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, grab a lawn chair, get a six pack, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. I think many of us might fit into this category without even knowing it. Our hope, our security, it's in our finances. But that's shifting sand. It can be taken away from you in an instant. The next thing that Coella says to us is this. The secret to joy is to see money as gift, not God. The secret to joy is to see money as gift, not God. This is found in verses 18 through 20. He says, behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. 
for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. And so he says, here's a beautiful way to live. That's what it means. When it says good and fitting, it's better translated. Here I've seen a beautiful way to live. Somebody who understands that their possessions aren't God. They're not their ultimate hope, but they're a gift from God. And so they can eat and they can drink and they can be merry and they can enjoy their work. Can you believe, can you imagine that? Enjoying your job? Like even if you have a crummy job, you enjoy your job because it's what God has given you. Isn't this the kind of people that we're jealous of? Like, I hate that guy. He's happy all the time. <laughs> this is what God has for you. And I want you to notice something. This, these three verses mention God four times. The previous verses don't mention God once. And so the, 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 we're seeing a shift in his head and he's, he's starting to say, look, here's the key to life. To see your possessions as a gift from God. And so God not only gives you your possessions, he also gives you the ability to enjoy them and then the ability to accept your lot in life. So he gives you the ability to enjoy them. Imagine that somebody gave you a cabin up at Lake Tahoe and it came with like a snowmobile and a big screen TV and a hot tub and like all this awesome stuff and free passes to the ski resorts and you're gonna go up there and have a good time. But you get up there and you don't have the keys to get in. That would be really crummy, wouldn't it? Well, God is the one who gives the keys. God is the one who not only gives the gift of the cabin, but he gives the keys to access all that it can bring. He gives you the power to enjoy it. So don't think that just because you have stuff that you're going to be happy. You, God has to give you also the gift, the power to be able to enjoy what he has given you. And then next he says he, has to, he gives you the, the ability to accept your lot in life. To be able to receive the hand that he dealt you. Can you accept the lot that God has dealt you? Are you pleased with the hand you have? You see, there's two types of theology that are false gospels in the Christian church. Poverty theology and prosperity theology. Poverty theology says, if you're holy, you'll choose to be poor. Prosperity theology says, if you're holy, God will make you wealthy. You'll be hashtag blessed. But both are wrong. Because in the Bible, we see rich people and poor people who are honoring God. And guess what? We see rich people and poor people who are dishonoring God too. It doesn't matter your wealth. It matters if you have the ability to accept your wealth as a gift from God. And can you enjoy it? And so this is what God has for us. It'd be better to say this. If you're holy, you'll see your possessions as a gift from God. And so some of us in this room are savers. Like you don't like spending money. You're frugal with everything. Your friends kind of accuse you of being a little bit of a tightwad. This means you need to loosen up. Because this passage says here, life is short. So loosen up. Spend the money that you have a little bit. Have some fun. It's okay to have fun and to enjoy the things that God has blessed you with. Loosen, loosen up, all right? From your pastor. 
And then others of you are spenders. You're like, I have no problem with this verse. I'm great at enjoying my life. But you live life outside of your means, and you go into a lot of debt. You're like, yeah, we have a lot of debt, but we had a great time. (laughs) And that's also offensive to God, because it means that you're really not satisfied with the lot that he's given you. And so the challenge is to us all, accept your lot. If you make $30,000 a year, and that's all you make, accept your lot. God has given you that. Rejoice. Be thankful. Making more money won't make you happy. If you're not happy now, what makes you think you'll be more happy when you make more? Like your job is to live within your means with what God has given you and to enjoy each day as a gift from him. If you make $200,000 a year, you do not have to feel guilty. A lot of Christians who are wealthy, I know they, they feel guilty because they're like, why? I just feel guilty that I'm making so much money. Is this right? It's okay. God has blessed you. Praise God. And enjoy the gifts that he's given you. And yes, you have a burden to care for the poor and a burden to invest into the kingdom. But it's still okay to enjoy nice things. And maybe, you know what you could do is you can get some nice things and invite people to enjoy those nice things with you because they would never otherwise have the opportunity. So it's okay. The call for all of us is not to compare ourselves to one another, but to accept the hand that God has dealt us. That's the key to happiness. The next point, point five, is this. The inability to enjoy life's good gifts is a terrible thing. The inability to enjoy life's good gifts is a terrible thing. He covers this in chapter six, verses one through nine. He says this, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. When he says it lies heavy on mankind, it's a way of saying this is really common within humanity. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to one place? So here's what he's saying. It's a terrible thing to not be able to enjoy life's good gifts. Um, Here he talks about a character. A character who, as I was talking with Pastor Gavin Jarvis, who leads the Carson Church, he said, um, a character who got his three wishes granted, found a, a bottle and there was a genie in it, and the genie said, what's your three wishes? And he said, my three wishes are, I want riches, I want God-like status among my peers, and I want everlasting life. And he gets those three things, but the one thing he doesn't get is the ability to enjoy what he's got. He doesn't get it. So he goes this whole life, just living and living and living, living on the rat race, never enjoying a thing, singing the Rolling Stones song, I can't get no satisfaction. And this is all he has. And his conclusion, Kohela's conclusion is this. It's a dark conclusion. He says, a stillborn child is more happy than he is. Now I know I say that 
I say that tenderly because I know many of you have experienced the grief of a miscarried child. And um, Koheleth is, he's not making light of that in any way. He knows the pain of that then too. Um, he's a shock jock here. That's what he's doing. He's like shaking us up and saying, listen, a miscarried child has more happiness than a person who has everything and can't enjoy it because it's a terrible thing to not be able to enjoy life's good gifts. And so one might rebuttal and say, I object. The key is wisdom. That's all we need. We need to go to a couple leadership conferences, to Financial Peace University. We need to uh, read some self-help books on money management, and then you'll be fine. And listen to what Kohelis says in verses 7 through 9. He says, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. He's like, look, wise men and fools, it's the same. You know why? Because we all eat to work and work to eat and eat to work and work to eat. That's all we do. That's your life. You eat to find strength and that strength gets you to work and helps you to make money. Then use that money to buy food and it's just on and on and on and on. And guess what? The appetite that you have is never satisfied as long as you live, until you're in the grave. And so he says, wisdom is not the key factor in enjoying life. Um, there's a lot of people who are wise with their money. Many of you are wise with your money, but you're miserable. And it says here, the reason why you're miserable is because your appetite is already, already, always wandering. You have a wandering appetite. Your soul is still looking for something more. And so whether you're a fool or wise, if you have a wandering appetite in which your soul is always wanting more, you're never going to be satisfied. You're never going to be happy. And some of you fit into those categories. You're a fool and you're not happy. You're foolish with your money. And you're, you're always wanting more and you're not happy. And then some of you are wise with your money and you're not happy because you're always wanting more. It's a terrible thing to not be able to enjoy life's good gifts. So what do we do? The last point that he has, point six for us, is this. The only thing to do is accept that it's God who decides. That's the only thing you can do. Accept that it's God who decides. This is verse 10 through 12 of chapter 6. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. That is God. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage of, to man? Here's what he's saying. Whatever has come to be, has already been named. Everything that happens in this context, financially, in your life, is already foreordained by God. That's even how some translations translate it. It's already predetermined. It's already been named. You can't do a thing about that. The net worth of your life is already determined by God. It's done. You can work hard and try to change God's mind. You can get mad at God. And it says here that it's, it's useless to try to argue with God. You're just wasting your words. Um, James Weldon Johnson says, man's arms are too short to box with God. <laughs> Isaiah 45, on this same concept, 
says that we're clay and God's the potter. It's a really silly thing for the clay to argue with the potters. It can't. It's God who decides. He's the one who's in charge. And so what this presses on us is to, to humble ourselves and to accept what God has decided. Now you might say, well, that sounds so cold-hearted and fatalistic and not loving. And if you say that, I say to you, you have to read the rest of the Bible, though. Don't stop in Ecclesiastes because you'll be a really depressed person for the rest of your life. <laughs> the rest of the Bible shows us that God is not only a God who controls all things, he's a God who cares for all things. In fact, he cares for all things so much that he saw the destruction of what is coming in this broken world that he entered into that destruction on our behalf. God the Father, who is almighty and all sovereign, sent his son, the riches of heaven, to come and become poor so that we might have the gift of the riches of heaven as his children. God is a God who doesn't just move us around like puppets and say, this is what it is, be happy. God sees our pain and enters into it in the person of Jesus Christ. And so because we see that that is what God does, we know that though we're not in control, we can trust him because he cares. Because he cares. The problem with all these people in this passage who are not satisfied is that they're looking to their possessions and their wealth for self-worth. And whenever you do that, whenever your heart clings to money, it leaves you empty. Empty is the heart that clings to money. And if you look to your possessions and, and, and your wealth and your paycheck for self-worth, you're gonna be unhappy. But the good news of the gospel is that's not where you have to look anymore for your self-worth. <laughs> now you can look to God's gift, gift of his son. He says, you want to know how valuable you are to me? Look at my son. The riches of heaven becoming poor for you on the cross. Stop looking to your bank account. Stop looking to your house and comparing it to other people. Look to the cross. And there you will find how worthy you are to God. And it doesn't make sense because we're not worthy. It doesn't make sense because we've sinned against him and we've wronged him and we've disobeyed him, yet he dies for us still. He goes to hell on our behalf on the cross for us still. And as he lays there and he's, or as he hangs there with his arms stretched out wide, he says, this is how valuable you are to me. I'm willing to die. So Christian, are you willing to look to the cross? That's the key. You see, if we step back from this whole passage and we just say, what is Kohelis saying? He's doing two things. On one hand, he's holding the sovereignty of God. And then on the other hand, he's holding human responsibility. He's saying, you as a human are responsible. Like, it's not fatalism. You are responsible to not let your heart cling to money. This is your responsibility. When you let your heart cling to money, it's going to leave you empty. You are responsible to not let your heart cling to money. You're responsible to hold it open-handedly as a gift from God, to be generous towards others and to enjoy it as a gift. You are responsible. But at the end of the day, God has to give you the heart to be able to do that. And so where does that leave us as Christians? To our knees. 
So we say on one half, God, I'm not satisfied. Like, I can't do this. I want to be satisfied. I want to enjoy life. I want to accept what you've given me. I want to trust in you, but I can't do it on my own. I need not just your gifts. I need the keys. Give me the keys, Lord. That is the heart of faith. And so we see the tension of those two things in this passage. I said at the beginning, the main point of the sermon is empty is the heart that clings to money. We can finish that thesis statement by saying, but full is the heart that clings to God. Which is it going to be for you? Let's pray. Lord, help us. Lord, we do get on our knees before you. We do just, as a people, we just say, God, we need your help. On one hand, we wrestle with the fact that you're sovereign, and that doesn't make sense to us. 